One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I cover all things food, from cooking to gardening to fabulous ingredients to junk food, health, sustainability, even policy. You might say I'm obsessed with everything about food. Food is the one substance that connects everything to everything else, and it connects us all. Not only can we not live without it, not only does it determine much of what goes on in the world, but we love it. Hi, I'm Mark Bittman. Welcome to Food. We have a fascinating conversation with our guest today. I think you're really going to enjoy this. We're going to get to it as quickly as we can because really it is terrific. We'll have a couple of recipes for you as well. As always, if you want to get in touch with us, questions, anything else, call 833-FOODPOD. That's 833-366-3763 or reach out to us at bitmanproject.com. Dr. Chatlin has indicated to me that the original How to Cook Everything pancakes recipe is one of her favorites. Since so many people have told me that over the years, I'm going to go ahead and do that one right now. I will note that you will be able to memorize this recipe, and I often cut it in half for weekday mornings, quick breakfast with my kids. It's amazing how many people think pancakes are hard to make, but they are the original fast breakfast food. Start with two cups of all-purpose flour. I have to interrupt myself immediately and say that I have recipes for this with whole wheat flour, and they're great, but we're going to stick with the original here. Start with two cups of all-purpose flour, two teaspoons of baking powder, a half a teaspoon of salt, a tablespoon of sugar. You can leave that out. Mix that all together in a large bowl. In another bowl, beat two eggs with about a cup and a half of milk. You might wind up using a little bit more, but start with a cup and a half of milk. And if you like, two tablespoons of melted butter. You should cool that a little bit before stirring it in. 
and then mix all that wet stuff together, stir it into the dry stuff very gently. You don't want to beat this batter. This is the only key challenge. Don't beat the batter. Just stir it. If there's some lumps in it, that's fine. And if the batter seems very thick, add a little more milk. While you're doing that, you should preheat a griddle or a large skillet over low heat. You might also want to warm the oven in case you want to hold the pancakes, but really you should be eating these as you're making them. When the batter's mixed together and the pan is hot, add a little bit of butter or you can use good quality vegetable oil of any kind you like. Grapeseed is the best, but canola, soy, whatever. Use a little bit of butter or oil every time you add more batter. So do that, and when the oil's hot or the butter is sizzling, ladle some of the batter into the griddle or skillet, making any size pancakes you like, from little to big. Usually the first batch is not going to be the best, but it'll be fine. Adjust the heat as necessary so you find that sweet spot. You want to brown the bottom of the pancakes in two, three minutes without burning them, obviously, and they will release from the pan, whether it's nonstick or not, when they're ready to turn. You'll see bubbles on the surface of the pancakes and you'll know that they're ready to turn. Do that with a spatula and then cook the second side until it's as brown as you like it to be and serve right away, although you can keep them warm in an oven for a few minutes. As I said, great weekday breakfast for kids. I'm really proud and happy to introduce Marsha Chatlin, who's an historian who teaches at Georgetown mostly about African-American life and who published at right about the start of the pandemic an astonishing book called Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America, which caused me and many other people to completely rethink what we thought we knew about the relationship between McDonald's and the black community. Dr. Chatlin won a well-deserved Pulitzer for the book. It's just been republished in paperback with a brilliant new preface. It's worth reading a second time for that alone or reading the preface. I don't need to say anything more here because the following interview is as interesting a conversation as I've had on and off the podcast all year. Somewhere in the middle, I was so moved by what she was saying that I had to tell her that. I'm completely in awe of Dr. Chatlin and her work, and I'm betting that after listening to this, you will be too. So I should mention that franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America, won a Pulitzer Prize. Congratulations for that. And in it, you write, since its first foray into Black communities in 1968, that famous year of racial protests and uprisings, McDonald's has played a complex, if largely unknown, role in both helping and holding back progress in Black America. Your book, obviously, is about this relationship, how McDonald's has helped determine where Black people live, what Black people eat, how Black people fight for justice. It's obviously pretty crazy and a really complicated topic, a complicated situation, not as straightforward as most of us might believe as first, not as Black and white as you might say. I don't know, maybe just comment on that, that this is very complicated. Well, thank you for saying that it's very complicated because, you know, as a historian, my goal is to always provide the context for the contemporary conversation using history. And in many of the conversations I hear about health and nutrition, what you should eat, what you shouldn't eat, what you should feed your children, what your children should avoid, there's a conversation about fast food that really takes it outside 
of the nuanced history of how fast food becomes a staple in black and brown communities. And so part of what I uncover in franchise is that this relationship between black America and McDonald's is far greater than an affinity for hamburgers or french fries or milkshakes. It's about a series of policy choices. It's about a series of compromises that are made after Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination that get to the heart of the ways that we often look to the marketplace to resolve the longstanding and unresolved tensions of race relations in America. And so in this really dynamic way, if we really think about equitable access to food and the nature of the food system in the United States, history has to be part of that conversation alongside public policy and public health. Was there a single inspiration or moment or story that inspired you to tackle this? Wow, there's so many. You know, I think the fascination that I have with this topic is the fact that, you know, growing up in Chicago, Black-owned McDonald's franchises played a large role, I think, in the cultural and social landscape of the city. And my first engagement, serious engagement with African-American history in high school was because there was a local quiz bowl show that the National Black McDonald's Operators Association, the chapter in Chicago, were one of the sponsors. And I remember growing up with the early Martin Luther King Jr. holiday and that organization sponsoring some of the mini documentaries and booklets about King's life. And I think when I got older and I started training to be a historian, I thought to myself, what a strange portal into Black history that it was underwritten by McDonald's. And as someone who's always curious about corporate culture, I started to think about the ways that in some communities, McDonald's had assumed the role that I believe the state should fill in providing the cultural programming and providing the health screenings and being the senior center and the playground and the center of the community and the first jobs program. And I started to really kind of think about that and wonder about the origins of that transformation. Something about what you just said gave me the chills. And I think it's that thing of saying it was playing the role that government should have been playing, that it was filling all of these needs of inexpensive, convenient food and community center, hangout place. You know, I wrote about some of this stuff in Animal Vegetable Junk, and I'm indebted to you. I was surprised by this stuff, because if you said to me, what's the role of McDonald's in black neighborhoods, I would just say, oh, they suck. But then I read about Nixon and the Small Business Administration and how McDonald's was encouraged to go into black neighborhoods and the sort of positive and very nuanced, I guess is the word, layered role of McDonald's as black friendly small businesses starting in the 70s. Yeah, I mean, throughout Black history, we see this strange role of the business person as the kind of unelected official and ambassador for the community, whether it was the funeral home owner who had to negotiate for access for a Black high school, or if it was the Black bank owner who is also financing scholarships to historically Black colleges and universities, there is a way that we think of fast food franchises as deeply impersonal because of the ways that they provide a product that is the same wherever you go. But I think in the context of Black communities, the idea that there is this network of people who are often very wealthy, very influential, and 
are supposed to symbolize a kind of progress that we have to take that seriously, regardless of our critiques or our consternation about fast food. That actually really matters. That's important. And that's one of the things I really wanted to draw out in the book, that we can have a lot of discomfort with the role of corporations in people's lives. And we can rally against, you know, the salt and the fat and the calories in fast food. But I think that we have to think about a system that creates this type of proximity and these kinds of relationships because people are outside of systems of care. They're outside of systems of federal response or real engagement with the problems on the local level. And so, you know, throughout the writing of this book, I had a lot of mixed feelings about whether I felt like this history was something to highlight or something to always be critical of. Or to get at this place that I hope the book gets at is a kind of call to action to say that we can actually think about ways of undoing a process that makes some communities so vulnerable to the whims and the ups and the downs of the fast food industry. The moment that I realized that McDonald's is at the center of the desegregation efforts that we often associate with companies like Woolworth during the civil rights movement was really eye-opening to me because in many ways, I think that McDonald's entry into Black communities after 1968 kind of erases this earlier history where you have McDonald's as the target of Black student activism with groups like the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and the NAACP. And these were places of very violent and tough confrontation between protesters and segregationists. And so whether it's Pine Bluff, Arkansas, whether it's the North Carolina student movement, whether it's Memphis, Tennessee, McDonald's appears in the early 60s as a force of segregation in the South. And we don't have that in our kind of national consciousness or memory of that period of time. And so all of this is to say that because of that history, when McDonald's is making a concerted effort to reach across the divide to Black consumers, they are very interested in selling fast food as something that is easy to access. It has no rules of engagement and can be a safe and comfortable space. And that's very important. I think that we lose sight perhaps that restaurants are a site of incredible racial trauma for African-Americans throughout the 20th century, unless they know they're going to a Black-owned business. When people are traveling, they use the Green Book to guide them to Black-owned businesses because you go to the wrong counter or someone's having a a bad day, it could be far worse than just being refused service. So I think that we have to, again, take seriously that McDonald's is special in the late 1960s and the early 1970s because of the kind of exclusion that Black consumers experience in the restaurant industry. You know, in the late 1960s, I think for many people who were active in the civil rights struggle of the previous 15 to 20 years, there's a real question as to whether King's beloved community and the idealism of, you know, the brotherhood of man, if this could actually happen. And I think that there's some cynicism and there's some pragmatism that pivots a lot of civil rights groups towards business. And the Nixon administration endorses it. There is a sense that if we're not going to get school integration and we're not going to get decent jobs, we're not going to get fair housing, maybe if there is some type of economic opportunity in Black neighborhoods, 
neighborhoods that communities that had long been left behind could be rescued, you know, from the next wave of uncertainty. And this is something that, you know, I try to be very sensitive about, you know, from the perspective of 2021, I can say, well, everyone was wrong. Why did they think something like this would work? But in 1968, every door is open. Every possibility is open on how the nation would really deal with racial inequality. And for people who stepped through that door of business and enterprise, you know, they had a sense that maybe a McDonald's in a community could lift people up in a way that would actually be adequate to address the multiple needs that people had. You know, Ray Kroc was just better at what he did than the other franchise owners. And so I think that there was a way that the might of McDonald's could also push against some of the other types of discrimination that Black entrepreneurs face, and that was with bank lending, right? So people couldn't get that startup capital from banks to invest in a franchise, but they could get funding from federal sources, and McDonald's invested in a person to help them with that application process. But McDonald's had the capital to forgive um, rents, to abate fees, to intervene. And so they just, they had the structure to do it and did those things in order to stabilize the presence of Black franchise owners early on. And no one had the marketing they did. I mean, some of this stuff is really innovative and prepared them to be in the position to take on this effort in the late 60s. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back with more food in just a minute. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, 
all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. We're all drinking more water these days, and we're all concerned that we're drinking safe, clean, unpolluted water. Yet, according to our friends at the Environmental Working Group, three out of four homes in the United States have harmful contaminants in their tap water. That's why it's worth checking out AquaTrue. AquaTrue purifiers use a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process, and their countertop purifiers work with no installation or plumbing. They remove 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters and are specifically designed to combat chemicals like PFAS, you know, those forever chemicals, in your water supply. PFAS, by the way, is found in almost 45% of U.S. tap water. AquaTrue has water purifiers to fit every type of home, from installation-free countertop purifiers to higher-capacity under-sink options. Their proprietary purification technology is independently tested to remove over 80 of the most harmful contaminants, including chlorine, fluoride, arsenic, PFAS, nitrates, and many, many others. The filters are affordable and long-lasting, and they do not need changing every two or three months like so many others. They last from six months to up to two years. Just one set of filters from their classic purifier makes the equivalent of 4,500 bottles of water, less than three cents a bottle. Plus, you won't be buying bottled water, and it'll save the environment from tons of single-use plastic waste. AquaTrue comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee and makes a great gift. Today, listeners to Food with Mark Bittman receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier. Just go to AquaTrue.com, that's A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com, and enter code Bittman at checkout. For 20% off any AquaTrue water purifier, go to AquaTrue.com and use the promo code Bittman, B-I-T-T-M-A-N. Have you ever bought something, owned something that really inspired you to up your game? A tennis racket, a new pair of running shoes, a new piece of cooking equipment that made you just want to cook your brains out. I know that when I first started cooking on induction burners, I just couldn't stop. It was so much fun. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Some of the features that are available on this car include dynamic sky panorama glass roof, front row massaging seats, you know you want that, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, which you will want when you check out the multi-terrain select. These are really great features, the kind of features that will make you proud and happy to own a Lexus GX. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Do you want to talk a little about the McDonald's in Ferguson, which has sort of symbolic value or symbolic history, and it remains an interesting conversation? 
Yeah. So, you know, when I started really working on this book, I had just wrapped up my first book and I, I was seeing McDonald's everywhere. Once you start fixating on something, you see it everywhere. And I remember, you know, shortly after the killing of Michael Brown and watching the news coverage from Ferguson, seeing this McDonald's on Florissant Avenue as kind of the backdrop for news reports, you know, reading stories about journalists being arrested at the McDonald's. And then one night, you know, people who were out on the street, they had kind of charged the McDonald's and I had gone to college at the University of Missouri. So I was familiar with St. Louis County. And I spent a lot of time at the Ferguson McDonald's just kind of watching the intersection of people who patronized at McDonald's. But, you know, it became its own character during the unrest because it was one of the few businesses that stayed open through most of it. And it was this weird place where every kind of archetype of person involved in this moment is converging. So there's protesters, there's police officers, there's journalists, and then there are the workers, you know, people who live in the local area who are trying to serve the needs of all these people, but it's a meeting place. And I think that this idea of McDonald's as this meeting place in Black and brown communities is something that is often overlooked in the analysis about fast food. But interestingly enough, it is franchised by an African-American named Jimmy Williams, whose father was the first Black mayor of East St. Louis, Illinois. He's a military veteran and on a quieter day, you know, where there isn't a major uprising in the town, all around the store, you see the pictures of the employees who have benefited from his scholarship program. That McDonald's, I learned later from some Fight for 15 activists, has also been a target of Fight for 15 activism and trying to raise awareness about the low wages that people who work there, you know, receive. And so I think that the uprising in Ferguson McDonald's is in the backdrop. The uprising in Los Angeles in 1992, there's a McDonald's in the backdrop. And in many ways, it was, you know, racial conflict that created the space for McDonald's to enter Black communities after King's assassination in 1968. And so, you know, I've been seeing these kind of direct lines between what does this space mean for people in crisis? This isn't something I've thought about, and it's just popping into my head right now. But didn't Englewood ban fast food restaurants? I think Inglewood passed a measure saying no more fast foods. And, you know, again, I understand the political idea, right? Like, let's keep this type of food out of our community. But again, I would say, why don't we think about wages and health care and free college and free child care before we start making the solution about access to certain types of foods and really start to focus on quality of life that makes fast food one of many choices that people have. You've done all this research. You've written this amazing book. When you think of McDonald's now, what comes to mind? I'm of two minds. So I adopted a baby boy six months ago and my husband and I have all sorts of, you know, projective conversations. You know, will we let him do X? Will we let him do Y? You know, I think the one thing that we said absolute no to is football, but you know, this question of fast food sometimes comes up. Will we let him eat fast food? And I don't know if I believe that I should restrict what my child eats, but I hope I can lead him to the conclusions that I have that when we have choices to make, we try to make choices that are as ethical and as fair, not to just ourselves, but to others. And that we are always really cautious about engaging in any kind of system that keeps people away from the things that they really need or the things to take care of them. So what would be an anti-fast food household? Probably not. 
Am I an anti-fast food consumer? Yes. I don't eat it myself, but that's probably more about aging than this research process. But I don't have like, you know, these kind of overwhelming feelings that no one should eat it because I don't know if I'm in the position to ever tell someone what they should or shouldn't be eating. But boy, will I tell them the context that choice is made. And the second thing I think about McDonald's after this research is I have a great appreciation for the creative energy of the fast food industry. The ephemera that comes out of this industry, it's so imaginative. The McDonald's land characters and their story and the world that they live in. I'm a child of the 80s. So I remember, you know, McDonald's used to have ashtrays. <laughs> so you could smoke inside of a McDonald's. You know, the design of the ashtray, the design of the Happy Meal box, you know, all of this stuff is so deeply creative. And I think because we have an idea of the food as being so uninspired, we lose sight of the incredible artists and, you know, cinematographers and singers and all of the people who have to come together to create this world. And I think that I now have a new appreciation for what they've contributed to American popular culture. You know, I'm a little on the other end of it. Like I grew up without McDonald's existing. I mean, I grew up in New York and it existed in San Bernardino and moved east, but there were no McDonald's. And then this is an interesting story that I've never actually tried to think through. There was a spring day in 1967, summer, spring of my senior year in high school. My friend Jerry borrowed his father's car and we drove from New York to Philadelphia because the first McDonald's on the East Coast had opened in Philadelphia, or the first McDonald's anywhere near us had opened in Philadelphia. And we'd heard about it and we wanted to go see what it was like. So yeah, pretty intense invasion of the cultural space when you think about it. I mean, this was a spring when we were smoking pot, listening to Jeffrey. An airplane, Jimi Hendrix, etc. Graduating from high school and sort of dropped everything to go drive to Philly to eat a cheeseburger. It's not fine art, but boy, it's interesting to think through the narrative ways. And also, I mean, I think this is something that, you know, you talk about too, is that even if we don't eat fast food, fast food has kind of created our expectation for the pace at which we eat, where we should have food and the structure of food. So, you know, my kid could never go into a McDonald's, but, you know, he's going to eat dino nuggets because someone has decided that nuggets of food is what the child is supposed to eat. It's amazing. And I think that, you know, looking at the archive and the papers of people who were part of that world, it's really, really fascinating to me because in many ways, it's both anthropological and artistic all at the same time in trying to get to that sweet spot of something that people feel like they can be drawn to. Realistically speaking, how do we challenge, how do we change racialized health disparities when it comes to food? And I, I realize that's a big question. I think it's an imaginable answer. So if we want to kind of reduce these disparities, we take a step back and say, what is the quality of life for working people, for people of color, for people, you know, in rural communities that are disconnected? And I think the first step is wages. People need to make more money so that they can have more choices. Like that's the first step. And someone has to be in an interview, you know, if you had President Biden on the phone and you said, what could he do for racial justice? Um, he hasn't called me yet. But I said, you know, all he has to do is we raise the federal minimum wage, healthcare for all, free college and free childcare. Those four elements can create a quality of life in which people can actually sit down and make food for their families. I grew up with a, with a single parent and fast food was such a practical choice in our household. How do you get kids fed fast? 
and cheaply and can be done in a context. I mean, this is the eighties where you could like leave your kids somewhere for a little bit. And no one got you know, I could go to a McDonald's by myself when I was 12, 11, eat dinner, get home, do my homework and, you know, watch TV, go to bed. These things were the most practical way of living. You know, I'm a college professor now. Jesus, I'm on the New York Times food app wondering what elaborate meal I'm going to make. Cooking is such a joyful experience for me because I make a good wage, I have health care, and I have time. And so when we think about, you know, what we can do in terms of racial justice, we have to understand that part of what we're seeing is that the quality of life is so circumscribed by race that all of these choices about our health and our communities can't be made under duress. And so we have to kind of free up the space for people to have as many choices as possible. Thank you for that. You're incredibly articulate. I can't tell you how often I get the sort of the same question, but it's like, how do we get the poor, often black, poor mother of three children to eat better kind of thing? Or how do we get her to realize that she's making the wrong choices? You know, you get that question all the time. You know, sometimes I get like a young nutritionist activist type and they're talking about these programs. And I said, have you asked anyone if they can pay their utility bills? I said, where are you going to refrigerate all this fresh food? How are you going to cook it? I'm from Chicago and in the Midwest, it's so cold. And there's a point where, you know, the gas company can't turn off your gas, but the second it gets about 55 degrees or 60 degrees, they can. So I say in this place where you're doing all of this great work, have you asked anyone what their gas bill is? You know, have you asked them if there's any place to, to store any of this delicious food that you've made in this local garden? And if you do those two things together, I think then you have an opportunity to maybe make some headway in changing people's food choices. It's big, but it's not impossible. You talked about cooking, and I ask everybody this. What'd you have for dinner last night? Oh my gosh, I made bulgogi. Whoa! I know, I know. <laughs> so here's the thing. I have an unusually even-tempered baby. This may change the second that I utter this in public, but I have a child who can remain calm enough so I can make a proper dinner. So I made brown rice, went to H Mart and got some of the marinated bulgogi, and I made it with this, like, it's not oyster mushrooms. It's some very exotic mushroom and bok choy and shallots because my husband's allergic to onions. It was so delicious and it was so nice. And I feel so grateful that I can do things like this, you know? And I think, gosh, my kid's going to grow up such a foodie kid, you know? And then I'm going to get annoyed with him because I said, you know, kid, I would have had lucky charms for dinner when I was your age. I mean, don't count on it. I cooked like crazy for my kids and they have a just wonderfully mature and straightforward attitude about food. Oh, I'm excited. And they're not, I wouldn't even call them foodies. We're starting solids this week. And I can't wait to start making, I'm making baby food for the first time. I'm so excited. Oh, that's cool. Marsha, thank you so much for this. It was beyond any expectations. Really awesome. So hope to talk to you again. Thanks for coming on. Absolutely. Since we are talking about McDonald's today, I thought I would share my recipe for Chicken Mark Nuggets, a dumb name, I realize, but hey, it was given to these some number of years ago. And it says what they are, right? These are a homemade version of Chicken McNuggets, and they do involve deep frying. So get ready for that. There's no way around it. There's a pan-fried version in How to Cook Everything that you can look for, but this is the original. I really think it's great. 
your ingredients are one and a half pounds of boneless chicken. Thighs are better than breasts. You can use whatever cut you like. Cut those into chunks and dry them with a paper towel. About a cup of flour for dredging, two eggs, two cups of breadcrumbs, the fresher the better, or you can use panko, salt and pepper, a little bit of cayenne, and vegetable oil for deep frying. Take a uh, baking sheet and put a wire rack on it. Put the flour in one bowl, the beaten eggs in another bowl, and breadcrumbs in a shallow bowl. Put the salt and pepper and cayenne in the eggs. You can use as much of each as you like. And then dredge the chicken a few pieces at a time in the flour, then dip in the eggs, then dredge in the breadcrumbs. As each one is done, put it on that wire rack. And then when you're done, put the whole thing in the refrigerator for as long as you can, up to three hours, uh, 10 minutes at least, 15 minutes at least. You can also freeze these on a baking sheet and then wrap them in plastic or put them in bags. They'll keep forever. But I like to just keep going. Turn the oven to about 200 degrees if you want to keep these warm. If you're not going to be eating them as you cook them, put at least two inches, two and a half inches of oil in a heavy pot. Turn the heat to medium high and bring that oil to 350 degrees. You can do that before you start anything else if you want because it's going to take a few minutes. Use an instant read thermometer to judge temperature or a cube of bread will sink a little bit before rising to the top and bubbling merrily or even a pinch of flour will just sizzle brilliantly if the temperature is right without burning. When the oil is ready, turn the heat up a bit and add a few pieces of the chicken, regulating the heat so there's a constant sizzle, but obviously no burning. You will watch these brown beautifully. Cook in as many batches as you need to. Don't crowd them too much. As the chicken pieces brown, turn them. The total cooking time is going to be less than five minutes. And as they finish, either eat them or transfer them back to that wire rack to drain, and then you can keep them warm in the oven if you like. Sauces, anything you want, mustard, ketchup, any herb sauce, salsas, ranch dressing, any chutney, mayonnaise. I mean, there are a million. They're all in how to cook everything, but you can figure this part out for yourself. Okay, there's that. Enjoy them. I'd like to thank Marcia Chatlin for coming on the show. You can follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Dr. M. Chatlin, that's D-R-M-C-H-A-T-E-L-A-I-N. And Facebook, at Dr. Marsha Chatlin. By the way, that's at Dr. Marsha Chatlin, Marsha, M-A-R-C-I-A, Chatlin, C-H-A-T-E-L-A-I-N. Her book, Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America, is, I think, a must-read and is available now in paperback. You might also want to check out her fascinating first book called Southside Girls. And that's it for us this week. Please download all the episodes of Food, subscribe, write nice things about us, come back. Call us with questions. Again, it's 833-FOODPOD. That's 833-366-3763. You can also follow me at Bitman or Mark Bitman. And bye for now. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.